You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 25th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Markus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme, Germany confirms it will send the much-anticipated heavy tanks to Ukraine. Could the move prompt other European nations to follow suit? Then Egypt's president touches down in New Delhi ahead of India's Republic Day celebrations. We look at the often contentious relationship between the two countries, plus the tourism boom in Thailand and why the printed map is making a comeback. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Markus Hippi. We start today's programme in Germany, where Chancellor Olaf Scholz is due to speak at the Bundestag in a few minutes. He's addressing the chamber to announce the plans to deliver heavy tanks to Ukraine, something that Kiev has been calling for months. The move by Berlin alongside the United States would give a decisive boost in support of Ukraine. Let's get the latest on this with journalist Bastian Brinkmann from the Süddeutsche Zeitung. Hello, Bastian, and welcome to the programme. Hello, thanks for having me. So, Olaf Scholz is due to start speaking any second. Now, how much do we know at the moment? Well, uh, you have to be very careful in journalism when somebody says it's a historic day. Usually it isn't, but I think there is some history in the making today because Germany decided officially to send uh, tanks, 14 tanks to be precisely, to Ukraine. And this is something that Germany... Uh, in these circumstances, um, has never done before. Do you know what has happened in the days and weeks leading to this announcement? What's been happening behind the scenes in Berlin? Obviously, Germany has been very reluctant to send this kind of aid to Ukraine. Yeah, also the hesitation probably was historical in its terms, and it took a long time and a lot of discussions. In the end, it somewhat happened what the chancellor said would happen, we would have an intense discussion, uh, talk about um, the barriers, um, but then he followed through and um, came to the help of Ukraine. Germany was so reluctant because many voters of the chancellor's party, the Social Democrats, were reluctant as well. They are, by history, a very pacifist um, constituency. They don't like weapons at all. They don't like arms dealers. They don't like any of that. And who does? But uh, if a war is going on very close to you, then you probably have to send weapons. At least that's now the conclusion that uh, even the chancellor and its party took. You said it's going to be a historic announcement. How much do we know of the scale of, of the help Germany is going to send to Ukraine? How many tanks and so forth? It will be 14 tanks, uh, Leopard 2, and all the logistics and training uh, that comes with that, um, the gas supply, the repairs, the maintenance, and so on. Crucially, um, is that Germany also will announce that all European neighbors are allowed to send Leopard 2 tanks as well. When arms are built within Germany by German manufacturers, 
um, there is um, an agreement that you are not allowed to send the weapons to another country unless Germany agrees, because Germany wants it to be as strict as possible with sending arms abroad. And this will unleash many more Leopards than Germany itself can provide. How decisive do you think this delivery could potentially be for Ukraine's success? Well, this, um, of course, depends on the potential um, Russian spring invasion. But the Ukrainians have called for Western-made tanks from the very start of the war. And nobody has the front view as good as the Ukrainians. So, And we've seen over the past months every delivery from Western arms they handled well. Um, they used it in the right tactical way. They used it in the right strategic way. So I trust the Ukrainian government that they will use the Leopard 2 tanks as good as you can in this brutal war. Do you think Olaf Scholz is taking some kind of a risk over here? Obviously, he was reluctant to send these tanks to Ukraine, partly due to his voters also being against that. Is this a big political risk for him? He tried to minimize this risk as much as possible. He um, asked the Americans to send Abram tanks as well. And our newspaper published this request. And usually uh, it's not typical for the German chancellor, chancellor to call the White House and say, we want you to do this and this, uh, please jump. Uh, but in the end, that's exactly what happens, although the Americans were very angry that uh, this request from Germany got out. But the US will be sending Western-made tanks as well. And this is crucial from the point of the German chancellor chancellery because it minimizes the risk that Germany is supposedly taking um, by only sending tanks made in Germany. So Russia cannot single out Germany as the one fueling this conflict. Can you tell me about the scale, how much this question strains relations between Germany and its neighbors, other European countries, for example, Poland? Well, if you asked me yesterday, I would say the tensions run very high. Nobody can understand the Germans anymore. Why didn't they do it a day ago, two days ago, a few days ago at the Rammstein meeting? Everybody was there a few weeks ago, a few months ago. And there's a lot of reasoning uh, behind these calls that Germany should have moved earlier. Today, I think, for example, Poland is very relieved. They wanted to help Ukraine even more. They wanted to send tanks. Now the German government will allow them to do so. So at the moment, um, relationships improved sharply. But how much damage is done that really the underlying trust over time, I think Berlin has some repairing to do there still. What about domestically? How divided was Germany over this question? And what has the reaction been now? It was a 50-50 split in all polls, a little bit depending on the framing and the question, but more or less two camps um, that the one camp wanted to send the t tanks, um, the other camp was opposed to it. Crucially now, um, Olaf Scholz managed to get his party, who was majorly against it, on his side. Um, the leading politicians and now his party members in the Bundestag, the parliament, and I think that the normal um, party members and his voters will follow their lead and also now agree that this was the right decision. Do you think after this day we will see the place Germany has in the world differently? Um, partly yes, partly no.
I don't think that this was a kind of leadership that you expect from a Europe's biggest economy, from Europe's largest country by population, because it was leading from behind. Uh, that's actually a German saying that the chancellor sometimes sticks to. But when it comes to a conflict that is so decisive for the future of Europe and the world security, you can't lead from behind. You have to go to the front. Germany delivered in the end. Um, the chancellor decided to send the tanks, but it was not leading from the front. It was leading from behind. And uh, so there's still some work to do. That was Sebastian Brinkmann from the Süddeutsche Zeitung. Thank you very much for joining us today. Now here is Monaco's Carota Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has made a surprise trip to Jordan for talks with King Abdullah. According to the Royal Court, the meeting underlined the need for Israel to respect the status quo of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. The monarch, who has had years of tense ties with Netanyahu during his past tenure as Premier, said that an end to violence was crucial to allow long-stalled peace talks to resume between the Palestinians and Israel. Former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that India and Pakistan came close to a nuclear conflagration in February 2019. The escalation happened after Delhi launched strikes against militants in Pakistani territory following an attack on Indian troops in Kashmir. The nuclear-armed neighbours have fought three wars since independence from Britain and partition in 1947. And Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has granted the honorary title of Rescuer City to Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, for its continued support to its city and people in Ukraine. The title was bestowed just one day before the city's 700th anniversary. Upon accepting the title, Remigus Shimashis, the mayor of Vilnius, pledged to provide even more humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlosa. It's 12.10 here in London, 7.10 a.m. in Washington, D.C. To India next, where the country is getting ready for its Republic Day celebrations tomorrow. But touching down in New Delhi today, ahead of that ceremony is Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, who will be the chief guest of the proceedings. The day also marks the 75th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between Cairo and Delhi. For more, I'm joined on the line from Chennai by Kapil Komiredi, Indian writer and author of Malevolence Republic, a short history of the new India. Good afternoon to you, Kapil. Could you first put the significance of this trip ahead of the Republic Day into some kind of context? How important is it? Thank you for having me on. Um, India has traditionally had uh, foreign dignitaries as guests at its Republic Republic Day parade, uh, because this is when India puts on an incredible show. And the invited guest um, has a special place, uh, is is treated as a state guest for that day. And it's usually the slot is given to a nation with which India is trying to forge closer relations. So the fact that Egypt has been picked this year uh, suggests that there is uh, work. Un- there's been significant work undertaken over the past year or past several years uh, to bring this relationship to 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 strengthen this relationship. And I think uh, President Sisi's uh, trip to India is the culmination of the of that groundwork by diplomats on both sides. Why do you think Egypt matters to India? Egypt has, uh, you know, these are two countries that have 
that regard themselves as civilizational nations. These are very ancient civilizations. And India and Egypt have had extraordinarily enduring relations for thousands of years. Uh, but even in the modern era, Egypt and India have had very, very close relations. Uh, India and Egypt, along with Yugoslavia, were the founding members of the non-aligned movement. And Gamal Nasser and uh, Prime Minister Nehru were exceptionally close friends. And you would go to Indian houses, you'd find portraits of Nasser in Indian houses and portraits of Nehru in Egyptian houses. Uh, since the end of the non-aligned movement, uh, Indians appear to have forgotten Egypt a little. Egyptians have uh, forgotten India a little. Uh, the, the, the animating ideology that sustained that relationship uh, during the Cold War ceased to exist. But now uh, there are new reasons to find each other. What are those new reasons? I think it's more Egypt uh, rather than India at this particular point. Egypt is trying to diversify its uh, procurement uh, zones for its weapons. It has traditionally relied upon, upon the United States and it now wants to diversify. It's looking to India. India is also a large uh, export market for Egypt and a very big source of uh, imports and the large, third largest trade partner. And India is directly responsible for something like 35,000 jobs in Egypt and about 400 Egyptian Egyptians over the past decade have been trained by India in information technology. So Egypt sees great potential here. And for India, obviously, the benefit is reconnecting with a country that is obviously a very major, major power in the Islamic world. And given that India is now run by a Hindu nationalist government, I think it would burnish the international uh, credentials of the prime minister. Do you think these countries see the world in a similar way or do you think there are some obstacles on the way when it comes to improving those relations? That's a very good question and it's a very difficult question because in the past, about I'd say about four decades ago, India and Egypt would have viewed, I mean six decades ago, India and Egypt would have viewed the world uh, in similar ways, both post-colonial states, ancient civilizations, um, both secular uh, Today, do they view the, the world similarly? I, I don't think so. Um, Egypt views, you know, Egypt's concerns are very different from India's concerns. Egypt is not a democracy. India is a declining democracy where there is, you know, there are multiple movements to uh, restore India's past uh, democratic credentials. Um, and this is more about President Sisi trying to strengthen his grip on power um, by actually providing, uh, by actually improving the economy in Egypt. And I think India matters to him at this moment. And the challenges that both countries face internationally, obviously there are some similarities there, but India is obviously looking to establish itself as a major power. So there, 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 there is some difference there. How do you think the rest of the world is is viewing this visit and possibly warmer relations between India and Egypt, considering that El Sisi is not exactly one of the most, one of the world's most popular leaders? Quite, quite. And India has, has uh, India has demonstrated a remarkable ability to court um, leaders who are not very popular in the West at the moment. For instance, India has not exactly ostracized President Putin. Um, and yet maintain very cordial and warm relations with the West. 
so I think the fact that when India can get away by being friends with Putin, I hardly think it'll raise an eyebrow when it invites Sisi as an honored guest. And I think within the Islamic world, the kind of reactions to the intensifying Hindu nationalism in India might cool down a little if the head of a uh, what is really a Muslim country, even though the army is secular there, were to come to India, and if India were to deepen its relations with that very important country. Just finally, Kapil, what do you expect from tomorrow then? How is the Republic Day celebrated? Oh, it's going to be it's going to be quite spectacular. Every year it's very spectacular. I think there are going to be hundreds of shows. There are going to be, you know, India is going to put on its um, arms and display. And I think for the first time, a woman is going to lead the lead the uh, naval naval forces. If I'm not mistaken, um, it is going to be quite, uh, you know, pageantry of it is uh, really truly uh, unmatched anywhere in the world. Kapil Komiredi in Chennai, thank you very much for joining us today. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Up next, we're off to Thailand, where the country has been enjoying a boom in tourism, particularly when compared to its neighbours. Monocle's Asia editor James Chambers joins us from Bangkok. Good afternoon to you. James, first of all, how was the move? You are now based in, in the Thai capital instead of Hong Kong. That's right. I've swapped Hong Kong for Bangkok for the rest of this year. Um, and it's been two weeks now, uh, so I guess I'm transitioning from from tourist to uh, local resident. But I I still feel very much like a a newbie. Tell me about the um, bureaucracy in Thailand when you are sitting in there for a bit longer time. Well, um, you know, t- I think getting visas in Thailand as a journalist can uh, take a bit longer than one might expect. Um, it's taken me a full 12 months, uh, but you know there's a lot of forms, a lot of uh, paperwork, a lot of visits to the visa centre. But uh, I'm happy to say it's all done now. Excellent. And I'm looking forward to not doing that for another year. Exactly. You've got there and actually visiting all those visa centres is probably probably a great way of getting to know Bangkok, I would imagine. But James, we we should talk about tourism in Thailand. A huge boom over there. What do the figures look like? Yes, that's right. The Tourism Authority announced uh, the full year figures for last year, and they were very pleased to uh, declare that the the number 11.5 million uh, beat their forecasts. Um, and that's a huge leap from the half a million that came in 2021 at the height of the pandemic. And that was a crushing blow for Thailand because the economy here is unusually dependent on tourism. Uh, but of course, it's nothing compared to the number that came pre-pandemic. I think in 2019, it was something like 40 million uh, people visited Thailand. So 11.5 is is a big increase from, from 2021, but there's still some time to go before 
we get to those kind of pre-pandemic levels. Can you see that in Bangkok, for example, that the country has had a rocky ride when it comes to those tourism figures and the impact of the pandemic? What is the mood in, in the capital? I think the mood this year is very positive. Um, and it's all because of the, the, the news over Christmas in, in China. Uh, I mean, Thailand is very dependent now on Chinese tourists. They make up, or they used to make up, more than one in four visitors. So when Beijing, you know, su- suddenly re- got rid of all their zero COVID rules and 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 allow now allow Chinese visitors to come to Thailand, that just changes the game for for this year. I've been speaking to some hoteliers and and people in hospitality, and you know, and they they had a full house in the week before. Chinese New Year and and over Christmas, so they're looking forward to um, you know a very good year in in 2023. You can still see the, the the effects of the pandemic. I mean, everybody in Bangkok still wears a face mask. It's not required here like it is in Hong Kong, but people just continue doing it. Um, and the only people who aren't wearing face masks are the the Western tourists. So they very much. Um, stand out, uh, but um, the city still feels very alive. There's a there's a buzz. Um, it, you, you don't have the kind of empty city syndrome that uh, you know we seem to be having in some Western cities. Um, and I think there is a. I mean, ties are always very positive and, and optimistic, but there's there is a um, a feeling that this year is going to be a good one, and you can see that in things like. You know the, the the currency, the Thai baht, is forecast to have a very strong year as well. They, everyone is expecting that Chinese money is going to flood into Tha- into Thailand, um, and that's going to mean uh, a wealth opportunity for everyone here. Do you think this has also been an opportunity for for Thailand to try to adjust its strategy of strategy of trying to attract foreigners to come to that country for holidays? Do you think Thailand could do something to reinvent itself or try to emphasize some other aspects of what it has to offer? I think it certainly could have been an opportunity to do that. Um, it reminds me a bit like um, Macau, which is hugely dependent on casinos and gambling, and it has been trying to diversify, but um, has not managed to succeed yet. Uh, I think Thailand is so dependent on on tourism um, and so closely connected with it that uh, its primary focus for the wealth of the nation is to get tourism going again um, and get people visiting again, get people spending money here. And then perhaps uh, the government can look into diversifying. I mean, the focus I've seen so far is getting that number not only back to 40 million a year, but they they want would like to get it up to something like 80 or 85 million um, by 2027. So uh, I think a lot of effort is being put in pushing tourism higher and and arguably making Thailand even more dependent on tourist dollars. James, are you heading to a beach anytime soon? <laughs> uh, I mean. T- For Bangkok people, it's currently winter and they're telling me that it's cold and they're wearing jumpers. But for me, you know, it's very balmy outside. I'm slapping sunscreen on my face, wearing sunglasses, and I now have a swimming pool downstairs. So at the moment, it feels like I'm on holiday. Uh, But I am one of my top questions for people I'm meeting is, 
where would you go for your first trip and which beach do you recommend? So it won't be that long. Don't worry, Marcus. Excellent. Monocles, James, Chambers, they're joining us from Bangkok. Thank you very much. It's 12.24 here in London. You are with Monocle24. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Welcome back. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippip. Finally on today's programme, when was the last time you went offline and travelled with an old school printed map? Well, it seems that the medium is making a comeback to the delight of aficionados around the globe. According to the latest figures by Ordnance Survey, the National Mapping Agency for Great Britain, the sales of custom-made maps exploded in 2020 with an increase of 144% compared with the year before. And that's not where the trend ends. It more than doubled the number of maps it produced in 2022 compared to the year before. For more on this, I'm joined by Nick Giles, Ordnance Survey's Managing Director for Leisure. Hello, Nick, and welcome to the programme. Good afternoon, Marcus. Thank you. What exactly has been happening? What is your theory? Why do people want to buy printed maps? Well, I think there's there's something you get from a printed map where that you can't get from a five inch screen to be able to actually spread that out over the kitchen table and just see the great landscape in in much more context. So it enables you to just just um, observe a greater area and to help you plan and engage with your outdoor activities. Do you think also, people are coming up with new users for maps? Um, there's a lot, a lot of people use maps for decorating even. Now. So, you know, we've always had a, a passion and a love for maps that kind of inspires that sort of spirit of adventure that we, that, that, that sits within us all. So, you know, even maps that we've seen maps used for wallpaper, we've seen maps used um, as, as, as just display pictures. We see maps that sort of create memories of, of um, adventures that you've had or trips that you've had or experiences that you've had as well. Who is, who is the clientele? Who are those buying maps? Printed maps. So we, we sell around about 1.7 million every year. So it's it, it, there's, there's a lot of there's still a high level of demand for our for our paper maps, and that that does range from um, people that are just going to an area and just exploring, so your casual tourist, through to actually a seasoned mountaineer, your hiker who are really looking for to get off the beaten track to go out and explore an area that may not be on your general tourist routes. But it could be anybody, really. I mean, there's there's so much wonder you can get from a map. And, you know, every map contains thousands of adventures that you could have. So um, it's a it's, it's a great tool for just experiencing and getting more active in the outdoors. Do you have bestsellers? What is what is the hit of 2023? We have a lot of bestsellers. Uh, the national parks around the UK are always the, the bestsellers at the moment. Snowden is topping the um, the poll. So um, a lot of people actually going out and, and trying to climb that. It does vary by different times of the year, but Snowden and the national parks are always always some of our, our, our strongest sellers. Now, Ordnance Survey has a standardized system of symbols, for example, for a church or a pub. I'm wondering, 
Do you ever need to change those symbols or update the way you show things on maps? We update our maps 30,000 times a day. So maps, the map is constantly changing. The symbols we do update from time to time. Um, so, for example, more recently, we've put in things like skate parks, areas where you can go kite surfing, solar farms. And the symbols are there just not only to, to show you what you can do in a particular area, but also to help you aid you in navigation. So if you can see a solar farm in the distance from a hilltop, then you and you can pinpoint that on the map. You get a really good orientation in terms of where you're going and where you're heading. And are you still on the right track? But yes, we constantly update all areas. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about the renaissance of, of vinyl albums, for example. Do you see similarities with what's happening with maps at the moment and, for example, those vinyls? Um, I think there, there, there probably are certain similarities, but as I say, it's, um, we, we used a lot of paper maps during lockdown um, as we were just trying to explore a local area. And you know, the, the, we've seen a real uptick, particularly from younger audiences. Um, traditionally, it's, you know, for those that have grown up only with paper maps without digital mapping, um, they've always used paper maps and that's uh, and they tend to use that. But what we've seen over the past uh, past few years is a real renaissance amongst the younger user, particularly using paper maps alongside a digital application. So you can kind of see where you are on the ground with the with the beauty of the uh, of, of a little pink dot on a, a mobile application through to actually then transposing that and just trying to get a broader context. So there is a bit and there's there's a bit of nostalgia that comes with them as well. Um, but, you know, like vinyl, there's that sort of classic sound that you get from vinyl. With paper, you know, there's the classic sound you get from scrunching up a paper map. And just the tactile feeling really helps um, brings it bring it into context. Now, considering the increased appetite of, of the audience who want to get a hold of your maps, can you come up with any new products? So we're constantly looking at new products and constantly testing new different different ways of actually sort of consuming mapping from from to sort of guidebooks that that combine the the physical paper map and a physical product with a digital experience as well through to we have a fully customizable map so you can put your own photo and your own titles on the front and really make and, and also pinpoint that um, accurately in terms of choosing your center of spot so if you you ever get to that point where you spread across two different maps and you have to get two we don't do that on purpose by the way um you can actually site center it and so that, things like that through to actually maps that can, can contain routes that you can mount on the wall framed on canvas so we're constantly looking for for ways in which actually mapping content which we love we would we're all in the survey um uh can be consumed by um by our customers and by the explorers across the world now finally nick a bit more personal question for you i'm do you decorate with maps yourself, as you mentioned, some people do, or would that remind you too much of work? <laughs> it doesn't remind, and much to the, the disdain of my wife, I have a rather extensive map collection, as I'm sure you can imagine, and maps sort of dotted throughout from, and the weird and wonderful from just those novel place names, some of which are a, 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 a bordering on the lines of indecency um, that sort of sit across the broader British Isles through to adventure maps, through to sort of old historic maps of an area. And you can see how an area has changed. So, yeah, I love maps. Um, my wife is learning too as well. Gradually. <laughs> Nick Giles from Ordnance Survey, thank you very much for joining us today. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carla Terabello. Our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 7 a.m. In Toronto, I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening.